Welcome to a special podcast episode of This Week in College Viability. My name, of course, is Gary Stocker. And you remember in previous episodes of the podcast, we have talked with higher education authors. We chatted in December with Brian Rosenberg, who wrote the book with the great title, Whatever It Is, I Don't Like It, which, of course, is talking about college faculty. We talked with Chuck Ambrose, who also had a book out in December called Colleges on the Brink. We're going a different route today. We're talking with Lorinda Nelke, who is a senior vice president at higher education at Kaufman Hall. Uh, she has extensive leadership experience in higher education in too many areas to talk about, but some of them include accreditation, strategy execution, financial modeling, and many, many more. You can certainly get the details from her LinkedIn profile. Lorinda, welcome, and tell us a little bit about Kaufman Hall and the work your team does. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. I'm excited, uh, especially about the questions that we're going to discuss today, questions and answers. And um, I would like to t talk just for a second about Kaufman Hall. Um, I've had a lot of higher ed experience most of my career. And uh, just about four years ago, went into higher ed consulting. And Kaufman Hall is a great company to work for and also to help those who uh, may need some or would want some extra um, additional projects done, uh, special, especially strategic work, as well as that integrated with financial, um, financial work. Kaufman Hall is very strong in the financial area, um, mostly known in healthcare, but for about 10 years, uh, we've been working in higher education as well and have worked across the country uh, with various uh, colleges and universities in various areas. So for example, um, academic um, profile, academic portfolio optimization, uh, financial planning, integrated with strategic planning, looking at the strategic plan, and a lot of, of areas that are uh, a little bit uh, special to Kaufman Hall have to do with the, the intersection of healthcare and higher education. So um, AMCs, schools of medicine, schools of nursing, we work a lot with those as well as um, just kind of the traditional liberal arts or the traditional technical based uh, kind of university or college. So that's pretty much Kaufman Hall. And very, we also have some thought leadership, which I think we'll talk about today. Well, one of the many things that intrigued me to reach out to you and ask if you'd be able to participate are the LinkedIn articles that you wrote. And this really forms the basis for the questions that I want to ask today. Because, Lorenda, in my mind, you take a different approach than most do. It's very analytical, um, and, it's, and I know it's what Kaufman Hall does really well. And I think what our audience will get, uh, the value our, our audience will get out of this is kind of that analytical piece that Kaufman Hall does so well. But I want to start with one of an article you wrote and posted as a LinkedIn article in April of last year, 2023. And you wrote the piece with Jason Sussman, also a Kaufman Hall a consultant. And the title was cute. How many swings can you afford to get a hit? And of course, you drew a baseball analogy. And we're generally making the case that colleges don't have a lot of swings left. And you strongly, in that article, you strongly encourage colleges, especially those with clear financial challenges, to consider new partnership models. Yet in my experience, and I assume in yours, there is very little evidence that this is happening. You noted in the article the closure rate, but colleges continue to try and hold on to the last minute. So my first question is, for those colleges or the stakeholders associated with those colleges, what kind of advice, Lorinda, would you give to a college leadership team 
who may have already waited too long to make changes to their business model. Yeah, so um, we'll talk in a minute, I think, about those who haven't waited too long, but but we do run into quite a few that have a very short runway uh, before they're um, at risk for closure or some kind of uh, partnership that they don't necessarily feel is optimal. So the number one piece of advice that I would give to anybody listening is don't wait. Even if you feel like your institution is in uh, pretty good shape uh, and you can pull yourselves out of it, still take the time to take a close look at a lot of your financial um, variables, the different uh, aspects of your financial situation. Uh, Perhaps someone like Kaufman Hall would be able to give you some very uh, quicker road to finding uh, what the, the situation is. And then to look at what, what are the scenarios that you, in which you could see success. And if you find that none of the scenarios really will lead you to success, then you need to look at something different. The problem is that if you leave your, um, if you leave your kind of the fix until it's too late, or if you try to fix things just kind of on the old, not really the old, but the traditional way of, of doing things, for example, take, make, make some efficiencies here, try to get uh, you know, an online program going there, try to uh, you know, have some, uh, some salary freezes here or there or hiring freezes. It probably won't be enough if you don't have enough runway. It's like a ship. It's sort of like a big ship where if you want to make a turn, you have to plan in advance, like in order to make that turn. You can't just stop within 10 feet or something like that or, or turn within 10 feet because a big ship takes a long way in order to turn. And that's what we're seeing in higher ed for those people that those uh, institutions and leadership teams that are waiting too long. And we totally can understand why they wait too long sometimes. You know, it's it's like it's part of our DNA that we can solve problems and in higher ed that we that we know how to find solutions to things and that it's always worked in the past. But in the present, it's not always working. And that's because of the headwinds that higher ed is facing. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But there, because of the multiplicity of headwinds that higher ed is facing, some institutions are have and will um, have to do some, take some actions that they don't necessarily uh, want to. I have my own list. Of course, I use the iPads data for my College Viability app and much more. And Lorinda, I have my own list of high-risk colleges. It's mine. I'm not sharing it with anybody. And there's 230 colleges on my list. And that's kind of what we just talked about. But that leaves hundreds and hundreds of private colleges, and that's really the focal point of most of our discussion, that have longer runways. Does the advice you would give that leadership team very much than that, what you just gave those colleges with a really short runway? Not exactly the same, but similar. And I, I won't, I won't say names, but we are working with uh, one institution right now who's in that specific that I can think of that's in that specific situation, where they're they're positioned very well. They have the right majors. They they have the right location. They have the right students, uh, but they're facing uh, they're starting to face a little bit of a de- deficit year over year especially around cash flow. And so when you're looking at when you're looking at those kinds of institutions, 
even though it seems on the surface that everything is going well, um, there is there are some warning points that they need to take advantage of. And this particular institution that I'm thinking of actually did. They hired us for uh, this kind of a, an analysis where we looked at the complete picture of where they are and what are the scenarios in which we in which they can see themselves coming to success. And so because they have a longer runway, they have a chance to make that to make the make the changes that they need to make. They're, the changes that they make are not don't need to be so drastic. Now this has pros and cons because I do think that higher ed is poised to be able to benefit from some pretty dramatic changes as far as uh, kind of the business operations, the business structure. I mean, not that higher ed is a business, but just kind of the way the way that higher ed um, does their processes and and that sort of thing. And even in academics, obviously, you know, there's some minor changes like going to online modality, but there are ways in which uh, higher ed can be disrupted that can be very beneficial. And so I do think that that's a positive thing for those that have a short runway. Sometimes if you have a short runway, you're kind of forced to make big changes and people can, people meaning your stakeholders can understand that there's no other choice. And I, I can give several examples of, well, one example in particular of, of a, a college that did that and did it very successfully, a university, I should say. But So there are pros and cons to both of these situations. And I think with, uh, with wisdom and also flexibility and agility, um, we've seen some great successes, actually. One of the other things that you mentioned in that, I think it was April 2023 article, you mentioned that larger private and public colleges were having layoff and program cutbacks. Now, on one of my other podcasts, I have an actual layoffs and cutbacks section. That continues to happen in 2024, late 2023 and 2024, even more than I think we saw last year. Is that what you're seeing at Coffin Hall? Absolutely. Um, and, in, you know, anyone can see who's following higher education in the news can see the news that came out about the University of Chicago recently, yeah. uh, Penn yeah. State. Penn State is a public, obviously, but also making also, a lot of a lot of changes and cutbacks. Um, and those are institutions that anyone rationally would think are very successful. Uh, but on the other hand, even the large institutions can sometimes run into some trouble. And we'll talk about endowments, for example, a little bit later. But I do think that um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier has something to do with this question as well. And that is um, there are some times where because higher ed is very traditional and that, that's a good thing because it keeps its, you know, the view of higher education as being as being um, respectable and also uh holding those degrees that they're definitely worth something. On the other hand, um, sometimes there there comes a point where certain changes have to be made. And and uh, we're kind of at that point, as you mentioned, not only just uh, small, medium, but sometimes large size institutions as well. And you can, I can give another example where there's, um, you know, considering a merger of some of the schools of a university with another university, for example. And sometimes that's beneficial. Sometimes it ends up to be more of the same if, if those um, 
changes in process, changes in efficiencies, changes in ways of looking at recruiting students are not made. In other words, if you just do a merger and then you keep on more of the same, the size is not necessarily going to help. In my mind, the poster child or the developing poster child for cutbacks and layoffs is a big college at West Virginia University. They have, what, thirty or 40,000 students. They build it on the old speculation, build it, and they will come. And they didn't come. And last summer and last fall, the news was filled with stories of West Virginia University doing that very thing, cutting back programs, laying off faculty. And, of course, you and I both know, and probably most of our listeners, anytime, any college, private or public, makes any kind of change to the business model, the protests that follow are automatic. And I don't know what good that offers, but that's that's been my observation and yours as well. Absolutely. And again, uh, one of the reasons for that is the multiple stakeholders and yeah. the traditional outlook on higher education, where yeah. um, change is, is hard and it, it's hard everywhere, but it's especially hard in higher ed. And let me just add something about the additional stakeholders that higher ed has, and that's the alumni and also the donors. And so, for example, um, you know, if we're looking at the the contrast between higher ed and healthcare as they try to make changes, um, healthcare doesn't really have alumni in the way that higher ed does, and definitely alumni is you know are very loyal to many times to the institution that they graduated from, and also they tend to be donors, and so when you're looking at that group of people, also they remember the way the institution was whenever they were there. And so making those changes uh, that are needed sometimes becomes um, not very attractive to that particular uh, stakeholder group. And so that's just an example of some of the the headwinds that higher ed is facing. Yeah. Yeah, And the the, uh, analogy with healthcare and all of that, that's a great point that that is easy to to overlook. And I want to, there's a couple of the articles I want to talk about, but I want to kind of change the focus for just one question. And of course, the end consumer, the end customer in higher education is the student. And there's the traditional students where most of the media focuses on, and there's the non-traditional, I understand that part. But from your perspective, and, and the look that you have at Kaufman Hall and the work you've done, the experience you've had, for families with a high school senior, maybe this year, headed off to college this fall, somewhere, what guidance would you give to that student, that high school student, and their family, their parents, to help ensure that the college they choose, ultimately choose, is financially strong enough to provide a solid quality education? So first of all, ask this question. question. (laughs) You know, as as a parent, um, it's going to be more and more important to ask this question because you don't want to get your son or daughter into a uh, into an institution that, you know, is going to close the next year, for example. Most of the time, if they're that close, you know, people will, will kind of know. But from a parent's perspective, um, I would recommend that you do some research yourself. Um, it's not so hard to do. And even if, if you don't really understand financials very well yourself, I'm sure that you would know someone who does, you know, a, an accountant or someone who's um, familiar with the numbers. And um, Gary, you know about iPeds, I-P-E-D-S. It's a free um, database about higher education. And in that database, you can look up the, uh, the past uh, track record of any institution's um, financial situation 
unfortunately, it's a couple of years delayed because this is self-reported data. But looking at that data um, can really help as a parent to be able to see, oh, this institution we're considering is very strong. They, they, they seem to be doing well or potentially there may be some danger signs there that you can you can find. And if that's the case, then it would be worth having a conversation with someone at the institution uh, who, who knows the situation. And again, it's a couple years delayed. So definitely uh, this is a little bit qualified advice because of the pandemic, you know, COVID uh, really made some changes in the data and we're getting to the point where we're past that in iPads, but still most of the iPads data is, um, is linked to the, the COVID years. So it may be a little bit skewed. So I would say do that research but also keep an open mind because of that, the way the data is reported. And of course, you know, the reason I, I created the College Viability app was to take that really cumbersome iPads data and make it easier for families, faculty, staff, college leaders to compare eight years worth of data from iPads, even though it's a little older. Matter of fact, the 2024 version of the College Viability app comes out next week and the data is from 2015 to 2022, but it still shows trends. Um, even though the data... I'll edit that out. <laughs> the data is a year, maybe two years old. It still shows trends. And I think that's what's important um, is the trends. You Don't tell me if you've lost enrollment for eight consecutive years that you're going to turn around in one year because you just can't do that. So that's the reason I created that app for parents and others to be able to do those comparisons and not have to fight their way through, through iPads. All right, let's go back to the big picture. Um, and we'll talk about endowments, and you referenced this a little bit earlier, Lorinda. And like you, I talk with lots of folks, and one of the perceptions I have is that many view, I'm talking about an endowment here, many, many view the endowment that every single dollar in an endowment is available for any type of use a college needs. For example, maybe a college with a really small endowment, believe it or not, or 15 million, 1.5 million, doesn't really have that available to spend as they would like to. And I, I have trouble explaining that to others. How would you explain that endowment function to those who need a little bit more clarity on that topic? Yeah, that's a good question. And we also run into this, um, this kind of confusion and not really obviously with our higher ed clients, but with just the general public. Uh, it seems like a lot of times, and parents too, it seems like a lot of times that um, you know, it seems like institutions are very wealthy because they have, uh, I mean, 15 million seems like a lot of money, but there are institutions that have in the billions, many of them in, maybe not many, but a few of them, they have, they have endowments in the billions. And, and so it seems like, oh, they're very wealthy. But in actuality, what happens with those endowments is that really two big categories in endowments, one is restricted and one is unrestricted. And so most colleges and universities endowments are what we call restricted. And what that means is that a donor, uh, you know, bequeaths funds or gives funds to a university or college, and they basically tell the university or college how those funds should be used. And that that's a great way for uh, donors to um, have some, you know, impact on the institution. So that's not that's not really a bad thing at all because the donors have certain things that they feel are important. And but what happens is that 
that restricts those funds to only that purpose, whatever it is that the, that the donor and the university agree to. And so in actuality, as we work with many universities and colleges, we see their financials, obviously. And we see that most of all endowments that we've worked with are restricted. And there'll be a smaller percentage that's unrestricted. And so even those unrestricted endowments, it's, it's a little complicated to explain here, but you can't just kind of take that, those unrestricted money, those unrestricted dollars, and just spend them on any particular year. You can spend some of them, and, and it's, a lot, it's a little bit complicated to uh, talk about that in such a short time, but even those unrestricted funds are not necessarily available willy-nilly to just use in any particular way. Most of the time, uh, a way that an endowment is used, I, and I should say probably, as far as I remember, all of the universities and colleges that we worked for, will take, uh, we'll take a percentage of the endowments, um, the interest, for example, and, and use that each year in their budgeting. So they'll, they'll expect to have some kind of a, a cash flow from the endowment just in ways, in, by way of the interest from that endowment. And so it's really the money that they can use, like the actual cash that they can use from the endowment is a tiny percentage of the yeah. total endowment. I want to go to a May, the article you wrote in May of, uh, May of last year, 2023. And again, this with Mr. Sussman. And the title read, Financial Reserves Build Institutional Resilience for College and Universities. And you, you cover a lot of topics in that one. But one of the things you noted was that one source of operating revenue, which the article kind of references in Financial Reserves, is from tuition and fees. And my question for you is with the intense tuition discounting pressure all colleges face right now to get students to accept a college's offer of enrollment, to accept their financial aid package. How reasonable, from what you're seeing at Kauffman Hall and in your own judgment, how reasonable is it to expect that the subset of small, mostly rural private colleges can realistically expect to drive anything close to materially significant increases in their tuition and fee revenue. So it has to be qualified with uh, with your word uh, reasonable. And as you look at as you look at those tuition and fees and what you mentioned about discounting, what that means is that is that colleges and universities will, um, in actuality, offer some aid, uh, internal aid to their student to their applicants, so that. Uh, the the actual price that they pay on their tuition is much less than the sticker price that's advertised on the website. In fact, it's usually uh, average around half, or and in other institutions even more than half, uh, even less than half, I should say, of of the sticker right. price of the tuition. And so what happened? What has happened? And one of the reasons that these small in rural institutions are in trouble is that they just discount more and more. And when you discount more and more, you do, you do get higher enrollment usually, but the enrollment actually doesn't bring in the revenue that's needed in order to keep the institution afloat. And so that's one of the reasons, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but one of the reasons that, um, that colleges and universities need to look at changing their 
business plan, business structure, and sometimes really changing the way they go about their processes, even academically, becomes absolutely necessary because they can't discount themselves out of this situation because there just aren't enough students who are able to pay the higher tuition price point. And so it, it the discounting becomes uh, kind of a almost like a something that that universities and colleges really have trouble to get out get out of. Right, and it's, it's you know it's it's a function of of supply and demand. You know, I've, I've yeah. said many times that there are probably no programmatic changes these colleges can make because there are too many college seats and not enough students willing to pay the tuition fee to fill those seats, and that's very difficult to fight your way through that economic reality. Okay. I want to go to uh, Lorinda, the October article you wrote, and the title was "Tuition Pricing." when the road less traveled may not be the best solution. And one of the things you talked about was tuition resets. Now, for those that follow my podcast and my, and my posts, I have taken a position on this. And for, for your information, it's not a positive one. But what, what are you seeing at Kaufman Hall? Can you talk about what you're seeing at Kaufman Hall and the results, if any, on the impact of these tuition resets? Yes. So we do have... Uh, firsthand experience uh, in, in multiple institutions about either doing a tuition reset or considering a tuition reset. And we, just like you, uh, often read the research and the kind of results of tuition resets to see if those results are positive or negative. Another thing that we look at is um, there may be some kind of higher level, for example, law schools or med schools that uh, specifically limit the number of students um, that, they, that they accept. And so that's another way to kind of look at uh, at revenue changes. Uh, but what happens with tuition resets, and I have to say this in the simplest way, and that is human nature. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that um, when you do a tuition reset and then your admissions folks and recruiting people who are looking at, you know, bringing in the next uh, incoming class, it's very much human nature to kind of slowly go back to those discounts that you had before. And so the problem is that when you can, when you don't have that very strict discipline over not taking those discounts again, it becomes like this, it becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy where you get to more and more discounting again, but this time you're discounting off of sometimes half of what the original uh, tuition was that you were discounting before. And so what happens is that you see an even worse result in a couple of years, three years, two years, three years, four years down the road than you had uh, previously before you did the tuition uh, reset. Now, I understand totally some of the very mission-driven reasons for uh, doing a tuition reset. So for example, you know, to attract and enroll those students from from certain, you know, demographics that, that you weren't able to attract before, for example, or maybe to attract great athletes, or maybe to increase the, you know, the GPA or the, the test results or, you know, the, the um, retention of the students that you do recruit. But I do think that I, that, well, I don't think we see that there's a slippery slope that has to do with tuition resets. And, and that, tw that slippery slope of kind of human nature, kind of slowly going back to those discounting 
um, discounting points that you were at before or close to what, where you were at before uh, becomes a, a serious uh, problem in a few years down the road. I'm going to talk about human nature. I'll, I'll share a quick story. I actually had a college president share with me in conversations with his parents for his students that they actually prefer a high price, high discount model so that the families can tell their friends and families that my child got a $40,000 scholarship to go to this college. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's human that's nature scary. too. <laughs> so a couple more questions left, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. And uh, of course, my college viability, as we talked about earlier, and we can we compare about 30 different IPEDS reports for public colleges, and that's enrollment and tuition and graduation rates and endowment and many other reports. Not quite that many for publics. But here's my question. In all the colleges you work with, both public and private, what's your perception of their internal ability, their own ability, to track and analyze their competition of the colleges? Yeah, it's variable, but in general, I would say it's pretty good. Um, people would be surprised, I think, if, if, if they you know, talked with colleges and universities every day like we do and, and also work with, with them in very detailed analytics. They actually, most of them know, uh, almost all of them know who are their competitors. Uh, they don't necessarily choose their actual competitors when you look at, uh, at you know, multiple variables, but they know their group of comp competitors and their ability to tra track and analyze their competitors is, is dependent on how much time they have, uh, their employees have in order to do that. And a lot of times they don't have time to do that. Okay. But what I what I should say, and what the most important point as far as this this question and this discussion is that although colleges and universities do know generally who their competitors are, they kind of put those on a shelf somewhere uh, figuratively, and don't really make that competition a part of their everyday kind of thoughts because everyone is so busy, and especially with you know. Uh, with people take, you know, holding multiple responsibilities at colleges and universities, um, they don't necessarily have time to think about that all the time. So the answer is uh, yes and no. I think yes, they do generally know um, who their competitors are, but they don't necessarily do a lot with that. Interesting. And then one final question. Um, I'm going to give you godlike powers here, Linda, and and whatever you say goes. And so here's the scenario I want you to address. You are the chairperson of a small college somewhere in rural America. And like many, the odds are stacked against your college for many reasons. And the guidance that you would give to your board and to your executive team and your faculty goes without question. What are the pieces of guidance would you give to each of those stakeholders, the board, the faculty, and others? Yeah, that's a great question and a great one to end on. I'll be very brief and precise on this. Two things. First thing, act sooner than you think. That means, you know, you need to start, if you feel that your college or university is kind of going down that slippery slope of, of deficits yearly and not getting the enrollment that you need, but you're still doing okay, act. And here are the reasons. First of all, it takes longer than you expect to persuade your many stakeholders that change is essential. So many stakeholders, there's the board, there's the, the cabinet, there's the president, there's the alumni, there's the faculty, there's the staff, so many stakeholders. 
And I can give you an example of two different, uh, two different institutions that we worked with, uh, one of which um, realized soon enough, barely soon enough, that there was a need to take action. And they, and they did. And over the last you know, two, three years, they've been very, very strictly working on the action that they needed to make. And they're still doing, they're still, they're still there. And they're still, they're still in, um, in business. A second one didn't realize or really wasn't able to make the, the, an, the amount of changes that were necessary because of the culture. And it's, I won't get into the long story there, but in, in general, the idea in that situation is that because when pushed came to shove and those changes were absolutely necessary in order to survive, they couldn't do it. And so they closed. And so I think that the, again, the number one thing is act sooner than you think you need to. The number two advice that I would give to folks in this situation is to change. And what I mean by that is to look at what the advantages you have, look at what niches you fill that make you better than anyone else in that particular area, and then make the changes bigger than you think. Because you have to take in, or you should take into consideration the fact that higher ed is slow to change, slower than other kinds of, of organizations. And so aim bigger than you think, because in the end, you may, from aiming big, you may come to the point where you're making changes that are big enough to bring yourself to continual sustainability. And I think that's really, that's really your goal. goal. So to, to summarize, first of all, act sooner than you think you need to. And second, make the changes bigger than you think. And Lorinda, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? And I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. So either by phone or by email, and um, either one will work. So Gary, okay, I'll, I'll, let, I'll give, let it be to you to uh, to provide that information. Cool. Melinda Milkey is the Senior Vice President of Higher Education at Kaufman Hall, has been my guest on this special episode of This Week in College Viability. Lorinda, I am grateful for your time and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gary. It was great to talk to you. <laughs>